Hello and welcome back to Breaking Social. In this week's episode, we're speaking to Katty Berrigan. Funnily enough, Katty is actually one of our friends. We worked with Katty back in our days working at Social Chain. Since then, though, he has found himself completely immersed in Web3 cryptocurrency and everything involved in the new evolving world over there. Today, Katty is part of the founding team of Third Web. Third Web allows you to build Web3 apps easily, implement Web3 features with powerful SDKs for developers, and drop NFTs without a single line of code. In today's conversation, we speak specifically around how Katy found himself in the world of marketing and why understanding culture played a big part of his role in marketing and how that has evolved into his role now at Third Web and how he plans on making Web3 more accessible to the world. So to get straight into the questions, do you want to go a little bit into how we met and how we started at Social Chain? Yeah, we met at Social Chain. My kind of route into to Social Chain, uh, a marketing agency for those of you who don't know, but I'm sure you guys have covered it a few times before. I had quite a non-traditional route into marketing, I guess. I was, a, I guess, a creator at heart. So I used to make meme pages, I used to build meme pages, which is how a lot of us kind of found our route in and obviously where, where we kind of crossed paths as well. And... Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of found my route, uh, you know, building a large media network and then somewhere along the way kind of found out that I had a good intuition for like marketing itself and transitioned over to the, the kind of campaign side. So ended up working with a lot of our early clients in the UK and then found myself in the US where we wanted to launch and I kind of went over there to to build the US team, kind of start the, the company from scratch over there. And um, yeah, found myself as creative director, which I don't know, I was creative director by title, but as many of the, the roles at Social Chain, it was fairly non-traditional in that sense. Um, but yeah, really looked after a lot of the kind of ideation and I guess execution of our client campaigns over there, eventually transitioning into almost like a sales role. So I was leading a lot of the pitches. And yeah, I, I kind of like just developed this really great appreciation for how like media and like social media and culture were like intersecting. Mm. And yeah, I worked very closely with the media guys, obviously with you two. And I think that was like a really great way to, I guess, develop an understanding for like distribution, but also like creativity and the way that it, it, it works on social. And yeah, I've really always been in social marketing roles um, and now found myself in the last 12 months transitioning over to Web3. Just uh, one quick question on that. What do you think it is about you that got you interested in social media mm -hmm. and marketing specifically? Well, I, I can remember I've been sort of making content online since I was like 12, 13. So I made, I have like a, a YouTube channel, which is now private. You can't see it. <laughs> but I used to make YouTube videos when I was about 13, 14. And I became obsessed, like genuinely obsessed with the idea that I could just make something. And I think I got like 500 subscribers. It was like this holy shit moment that you could just build things and then people online can just see mm. it. And ever since then, I almost like kind of went platform to platform trying to figure out what my where my place was. So I did like, I used to do like photography on Flickr. Uh, and then I tried like Facebook pages and it didn't really work. And then I found Twitter. Um... And I remember one day I did like a, I started a, a meme page, which was around GCSE exams, basically. And one of the tweets blew up, got like three or 4,000 retweets, which was a lot of the time. Um, and the page shot to like 10,000 followers. And I was like, okay, holy shit, there's, there's something here. Um, and that just gave me this like obsession with, I think, creating and putting things, putting things online and, and creativity as well. It was, you know, this like, as someone who isn't necessarily a good designer or very technical when it comes to creating you know I was able to like write copy and pick out a funny image and I had this good understanding of how to create memes basically uh, and once you find like your 
your format, I think then you just kind of like go down a rabbit hole of, of creativity. And so like social media, became, since then, just like the ability to build audiences, but also like inf- inf- influence culture and share ideas, basically, just was, was super appealing to me. And then it became basically the, the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And somewhere along that journey, I think I actually remember seeing you in the moment when this happened, but I remember coming into work one day and everyone was sort of sat around on the phones chatting away. Oh, I'm going to put this amount in. I'm going to put this amount in. And it was you essentially, I think for the first time figuring out what Bitcoin was mm-hmm. and, or at least the first time you were chatting about it openly in the office. Yeah. Um, what was that like the first time that you started to discover what the blockchain was, what Web3 was, what it was all about? Yeah, so that was probably 2017 or 2016. And to be completely honest, my journey into crypto came from somebody in the office smarter than me telling me about it. Right. It wasn't like some organic discovery. And and to be honest, it wasn't something I fully understood at the time. But I think, I guess, anything for me that is like an alternative to the kind of standard generic systems is, is interesting. And I'm so, I'm not someone who's massively interested in finance It's mm. or like numbers and maths. And so it wasn't anything that really came organically to me. I just saw the kind of people working in the space and I knew it was something I had to keep an eye on. It was only really with NFTs and Web3 like two years later, three years later, that it really kind of clicked for me as someone who's probably more closer to like culture and creative and, and the arts. That's when, you know, I'd had money in the space just because I had friends who had money in the space, um, which I'm happy to admit. But it was only when I think NFTs came along that, okay, there's like actually some culture tied to this and the ability to, you know, make bets on the kind of cultural movements Hmm. was when it like really clicked that there was something way more uh, compelling here. And I actually think more compelling than the financial side of it to the general public, to the population, because I think people like the arts more than they like finance. One more question for me before I want to sort of really dig into this, but I know quite a few of our listeners will be quite heavy in, in the marketing world and maybe some some might not mm. even have a full understanding of the blockchain, what an NFT is, what, why it's useful and what's going on. Would you be able to give a summary of what NFTs are, why they're useful, how it links to the blockchain? And, and if you do have a, a sort of a nutshell Web3 sort of description, that would be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. I mean, Web3 is the kind of, it's a difficult, it's a a big question. But Web3 is obviously like a more of an umbrella term, which basically speaks to kind of any new company or organization, which, you know, has some involvement with the blockchain, but also has uh, decentralized ownership. So the participants kind of take part in the the ownership of the the platform. And um, when you have this like layer of ownership that is created over over the internet, if you think about the way the the web is is currently structured, Mm. you basically have five or six big organizations who hold all of the value that the the internet has created and then the trickle down to the users and the people who participate in the the platforms is very very small Mm -hmm. and it's just a very bad model for how we should be rewarding people for the time and effort that they they spend and you guys know know, better than anyone from the agency world that creators and, and people who have amassed large audiences their revenue model is to work with brands or to look externally, mm-hmm. whilst the the platforms, all the eyeballs that's generated on those platforms, they take all of the, the revenue. What Web3 does is it creates this layer of ownership where the participants, the people who are using, but also creating and, and generating eyeballs for these platforms now take part in the ownership and they actually take part in the financial upside. Now, we're still 10, 15 years away from that being fully realized and Web3 currently is built on top of Web2 platforms because the network effects of 
things like Twitter, YouTube, they're not going to be displaced until we build a better product. And that will take 10, 20 years even. Um, but what it's doing is creating just a better alternative for creators to make money, which is just a, a net positive thing for the world. NFTs are a you know really key kind of mechanism in all of this. And they were the kind of almost evolution of crypto tokens. So a crypto token being a cryptocurrency, something like Bitcoin, something like Ethereum. And we saw these tokens that were you know, analogous to ownership released before NFTs. What NFTs did was bought art into the mix. And now that a, uh, you know, piece of art, a, a digital image, or it could be a digital video, a, basically any multimedia file could now exist as a, as a token, gain all the properties that a, a cryptocurrency basically has. Uh, and those properties are like access to a market. So you can trade, buy and sell the mm. token, right. um, you know, price discovery, knowing exactly how much that thing costs um, and being able to transfer it easily between people. So the way I like to think about NFTs from a very kind of high level uh, perspective is basically what the technology enables is for us to be able to take a digital asset, so like an image, any basically digital file and ascribe the same properties that we ascribe physical items and that is the creation so who created it which is if you, if you think is that's what a brand is that's you know the reason i buy an iphone from apple is because i bought into the the brand behind apple you can now do this with a digital asset you can say there is indisputable proof that it was created by this person it also then has indisputable proof of ownership so who owns that thing again these were things that weren't possible before hmm. blockchain before nfts and then the final thing is scarcity so how many of that thing exists and that really is a large part of how value is ascribed. Uh, when you have these three things, you're able to then unlock this kind of digital economy of digital assets, which didn't necessarily exist before. And then you have the kind of utility on top of that. So the the kind of utopian view of Web3 is that all of these platforms that we use today, you'll be able to log in with your NFT wallet. And we're starting to see it now with Twitter have you know NFT integration, albeit you know still only small. You can have your profile picture as an NFT. Instagram are in the process of of having NFT integration as well. And I think, you know, in the future, we'll see it with, with basically every other platform. Once we have that, again, you have these digital assets, which now have kind of utility across every single platform. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult to kind of predict exactly how that will look and what that will enable. But, you know, you can have some kind of theories like in video games, if I hold like a you know, Manchester United NFT, I'll then be able to get like a, a, a shirt in a video game. And mm. suddenly the, the token kind of exists between different platforms. They're not kind of within closed ecosystems, which again, really kind of prevents the value from, from increasing. And so, yeah, when you kind of all add all of that together, you basically have this you know digital economy of assets that has appeared overnight, essentially. And the real, I guess, like reason this is so exciting is because it just provides a an incredible model for artists, creators to to monetize their audience. Not necessarily the only way they'll monetize their audience, but it provides another option, which I think is always important and always, you know, massively, you know, beneficial for the world that, that creators and artists are able to create more. Um, and I think it solves the problem for me, which is what Web2 social platforms enabled was this kind of explosion of creativity and it mm. lowered the barrier to entry for creators. And as a result, we had this kind of, you know, cultural social renaissance, mm -hmm. um, but there isn't really a middle class for those creators. And what this does is it enables a much better model for financially rewarding them. And now people can suddenly, you know, live and, and do this. And again, it will just, it will, you know, create more art, it will create more creators. There are, from what I can see, at least two very clear different types of people that are operating in the space right now. Yeah, There's people who, for the reasons that you've mentioned just now, believe in the technology long-term because mm -hmm. when you think about it, it seems to make a lot of long-term sense. It's also a net 
positive thing to do for the world. There are also a massive group of people there to make a load of money. Yeah. That is for a lot of people. They see they see the intense um, ups and downs of the market, and it's attractive to a lot of people because they've also heard of these stories of different NFT collections that have been released and gone through insane value. The same with different types of coins that are then created and go through insane value. I think the first question I've got on that is, People that are in the space for financial purposes only, do you think that's a positive or negative thing, short-term and long-term? I mean, it's a negative thing, definitely. I think it's an inevitability. In any industry, when there's a huge amount of money flowing in very quickly, there's always going to be people who want to exploit and take advantage of that. Mm. The problem with this industry is that it's so efficient in terms of the way money is paid out and how mm. quickly you can realize value. And this is this is one of the great things about kind of NFTs and digital marketplaces is the inefficiency it is the efficiencies so the transparency of it being able to see exactly how much everything costs and, and where the money is going in real time so all the money is paid out in real time as well huge hugely efficient and the access you have to uh, the kind of network that these cryptocurrencies have created so you can tap into the ethereum network that has a huge amount of capital flowing through it and you're able to to basically access these kind of high net worth individuals all massive efficiencies which are massively beneficial for artists and then on the flip side, it therefore is very easy for people to exploit that. And yeah, you see a lot of it. You see, you know, rug pulls where people create projects. They use kind of inauthentic marketing techniques to get a huge amount of interest and then basically leave the project alone once the money is is paid out. Massive problem. But the solves here are better education in the space. So allowing people to have a better understand how to spot these things and basically avoid them. Um, and unfortunately, people will need to get burnt a few times before mm. that, that education comes in. But also the regulation needs to improve massively. Mm. And we're starting to see that now with there are a few court cases where people are being kind of held accountable. Um, but yeah, I think that massively damaging because what it does is it makes NFTs kind of absorb these problems as in terms of the PR around NFTs. And now I think NFTs is this kind of loaded word that people associate with um, you know, bro culture and scams and all the kind of negative sides of it. Um, and it's actually quite a divisive term now. Um, I think where we'll get to in the future is we won't really use these terms. The technology will just work. We won't need to kind of, you know, battle with these PR issues. But in the short, in the, in the, in the short term, it's probably inevitable and probably positive that it happens to, to educate people. Mm. But actually, no, it needs to be solved in the long term. Otherwise, people just won't adopt this because it's too risky to have, you know, your money at stake, essentially. Mm. And you out of most people will be more educated on on you know the things that say for example you're looking for a certain uh, new product to get involved with, or you're not even looking and you just see one and, you, and you'll you'll probably then go through a certain process to make a decision on yep. whether that's a project that is not only worth your time and money but worth any time and money at all or whether it's something to be wary of what nft projects are you involved in personally and what to you made them a sensible thing to do yeah i mean I, I don't hold that many projects, but the ones I do hold are like carefully selected. Right. So uh, projects like Board Ape Yacht Club, Doodles, Clonex, for me, they're the, the three standouts for me. Mm. And I, I just evaluate it like I evaluate any startup. I, how you should, you know, you should view these projects as startups. Therefore, are the team a legitimate? Which in this space, there's this huge kind of trend of having, you know, pseudonymous creators, which is fine. But I actually think that, you know, when you're evaluating a project seeing a, a team which is doxxed as you call it in the space but basically they're, they're not anonymous you know who they are and they have track records of building other businesses well that's just like a, a no-brainer really you also need to look at i always say like team and time so like the team like i said being very kind of um having like a track record but also have they like built uh like value over a large period of time in the market so 
what I, what I mean by that is like a project which has you know sustained like a, a good price for like six months is much better than a project which is kind of shot up in three weeks to a similar price mm. because then people have kind of really bought into the the kind of vision and also like the the artwork behind it. Um, another way of evaluating that is you know if you look at like so a lot of them if you look at the, the artists for example where the the project is is centered around if they're like an artist who's been active for ten years and they've built like an organic audience that's that's the time there that's that you know that they've kind of really proven that they have like a product that's in demand over over a 10 year period. But to be honest, when I talk to people about buying NFT projects, there are five that I say that I would ever recommend buying and they are the top five projects because everything else below that, I don't think you can guarantee is going to hold its value just because we are in such a wildly speculative time. And the five projects I mentioned all have venture money at this stage. And so I know that during a market downturn like this, they have the capital to keep building and they're going to add value to the token thereafter. There are a lot of projects which don't have these kind of teams who are approaching this like a tech company. Mm. They'll like hand the keys over to the community. So they'll release a project and they'll say, you know, go create art things or go like create a game. That just isn't going to work. And I think that's like a an idealistic view. And so like I've only ever focused on projects which have teams who are building for long term and have long term visions. Um However, they just tend to be the top five teams. And I think we're in, I don't recommend anybody invest in NFT projects unless you have an, you know, an immense amount of knowledge and kind of almost obsession at this stage because it's wildly speculative. And we're in a bad time, I think, in terms of the way the tech's being used. It's not, it's not going to be how it's going to be used when this kind of, the, the potential realizes itself. And you mentioned one of the key factors with Web2 is that there's five or six major companies yeah. that have most of the resource because the most people support those products, so they have the most users. Do you think it's likely that the same thing will happen in the NFT space where there's five or six major projects that are controlling effectively what is going on in the in the major market just because they can sort of snowball based on the fact that there's there's so many people? Yeah, so right now we're seeing a, if you look at the kind of numbers, the top five projects are now kind of pulling away from like the, the the next 30 or so mm. projects, which does feel very similar to what we saw in Web 2, but in this kind of accelerated time frame. So you're right. I, this is why I mean that I don't think what we're seeing now is a healthy example of what the space will look like. Mm. And that's because every single, all of the money, I'd say 95% of the money going into NFTs now is, is speculative. Mm. It's investment money. People aren't buying these for, for their utility. They're buying them because the number might go up. And that's just because the technology is new. And actually, speculation and um, short-term financial gain is the main utility in Web3 and NFTs right now. Now, what that, that doesn't mean that these tokens won't be valuable in the future, but yeah, we're basically at a time where, because we don't really know what the use cases are, it, it's it's very difficult for these these companies to to kind of build and sustain uh, anything any long-term value without like a huge amount of venture money. What I will say though is that there are so many. I think like we again like focus. And, you know, you tend to read about and the, the market will always focus on the top 10, 20 projects. Actually, there are, you know, thousands of creators who are just now making better sources of income. They're not necessarily making a million, two million a year, but they've gone from making, you know, 30K a year to making 60, 70K a year. They're just now able to support themselves in a much better way. And there are thousands of creators who are doing that. Again, these aren't reflected in the numbers because they're tiny compared to, you know, Board Ape Yacht Club, Yuga Labs, now valued at three or four billion, which is great. But that for me isn't why this is exciting. I'm not excited about, like you said, a few companies which have, you know, venture capital money gaining huge billion dollar 
valuations, it kind of validates the space and it tells us that there's some value being created here. And, you know, the biggest project in Web3 should be valued at that much. But actually what's way more exciting is the numbers that's happening below. And it's a better spread. It's just a more equal spread amongst these kind of individual solo creators. And you don't need to be a big company with high overheads. There are, you know, musicians, artists who are just generating more income from much smaller audiences than they were when it came to, you know, Web2 platforms relying on Spotify and the kind of tiny royalties you get there. Talking about music specifically is an interesting one because Web2 revolutionized the way that creators could generate revenue, whereas previously it was owned by record labels who there's been examples of like groups ending up in debt to a, a record label after releasing an album somehow. And then Web2 sort of allowed people like, Macklemore, I guess, to mm. try and find some at the top of my head that released uh, an album just completely on his own through yeah. through YouTube or Logic, I guess, someone else. Mm-hmm. And now you've got Web3 where they can release it without any other platform necessarily taking uh, a cut of their products. Yep. But if you are one of those artists that wanted to release a, a product or a, a track or a piece of art on the platform, what are the differences between how you would market yourself what would you have to do to be able to get people to be attracted to that product where would you, where should you be talking about these things and how do you attract that kind of unique market that is interested in both art but also understands the yeah. nft space yeah the first thing i'll say there is um we just we just recently done a video piece on the kind of music industry and how web3 is disrupting it and what we kind of learned pretty quickly um this is kind of a side point to the questions that mainly why web three is so exciting for musicians is that if you think on spotify um they basically get paid i think it's 0.003 cents per stream Mm. the problem there is that all of their fans they are kind of equally valued at at how much money they receive per stream but they have you know fans who are true kind of diehard their absolute biggest fans who would actually pay more per stream than like the the casual listener and what kind of releasing their music as an NFT does, it enables them to kind of really unlock like outsized revenue from their true fans because all of a sudden the market is deciding the price and people will bid and they'll be, you know, kind of because there's, there's a scarcity element, there's only a certain number of NFTs you can buy. All of a sudden that you're able to, you know, the top 0.1% of your audience who, you know, money might not be a problem for and they want to support you. There's now like a, a very simple mechanism for doing so. And so suddenly they're realizing there was an artist recently who from 130 of his audience bought his NFTs, raised like four or five million dollars. And that was the equivalent to, you know, 10 million streams. But because he's found a way of how do I monetize the top 0.1% of my audience who want to support me and have the money to support me. And so like, again, this is where, you know, we're seeing them now really want to make this shift. But you're right, it requires a very kind of different approach and even the platform. So like the, you know, there are two things here. There are the, the question we get asked as a business a lot is how do I convert or how do I educate my audience on Web3 and how they can interact with my work with Web3, but also how do I actually tap into the existing crypto native Web3 audience? Because the existing Web3 audience, even if they haven't heard of you, uh, they're technologists and they're forward thinking and a lot of them have capital because of the growth of cryptocurrency and they want to support any art project that they believe is pushing the the space forward. Um, And yeah, there are certain kind of tactics now, I think like being more present on Twitter. So a lot of the musicians we speak to are now completely rethinking where they spend their time socially. And Twitter is really where Web3 has kind of found its home. Whereas places like Instagram and TikTok often are actually seen as like there is a association, particularly on Instagram, that Instagram NFT projects are low low quality, low value. 
because a lot of projects have used the kind of cheap reach you can get through buying meme pages on there to kind of you know pump their pump their their bags essentially whereas twitter it's just more difficult to do so and so twitter is seen as this kind of organic you know platform community building place where yeah now musicians are now thinking about okay how do i actually create my content so it's more optimized for twitter and then you tap into the web3 audience which is already there and so like doing twitter spaces with you know web3 creators or just creating really kind of insightful technical content about how you're creating your work will really help people then tap into the the audience there but like i said there are now people who want to discover these artists because they believe that you know if i support a musician who's pushing web3 forward then it pushes the whole space forward and so it's a combination of i guess like educating their audience a little bit and there's some like tech you can use now which enables people to you know buy an nft with their credit card or log into your nft purchasing kind of marketplace with their email as opposed to having to create an nft wallet which are you know still really bad user experience uh, processes for kind of non-technical users uh, so com- combining that tech with some education is a good way but actually tapping into the existing web3 audience i think is how people are really kind of seeing you know their, their value be realized and so if you're an artist that that artist that released what did you say released on the, the platform specifically so it was um so yeah this is the other question right and i think this is the things that the artists battle with is what am i actually releasing here hmm. um and uh, a lot of them basically so he released an album and it's important to remember here that it's not like the nft is how you listen to the album the album is still free and this open to listen to anyone uh, so it's still on spotify it's still completely free what he's releasing alongside it is a basically commemorative digital piece of artwork and then there's 10 of them available that um you know is the kind of uh, accompanies the the album release and it was just a short i think it was like a 10 second looping video with like one of the tracks played in the background one nft per track and it's a collectible item essentially. What they also did, there was some utility attached to it. So it was a big DJ and basically it got you um, like backstage access at any of his shows if you hold one of these tokens. These are like money that can't buy experiences, right? Mm. And again, like it's the kind of thing that somebody is willing to pay, you know, six figures for because it's just un- unavailable anywhere else. Um, so collectible items is basically what is one way they're viewing it right now. In the future, there may be like royalties and other things attached to it. But right now, it's just a, um, you know, a good way of releasing memorabilia, essentially. So you could understand it almost like we were in a vintage t-shirt shop the other day and there was an old school like Guns N' Roses t-shirt yeah. and it was like 300, 400 pounds for this old tee that exactly. will have been 20 pounds or 10 pounds if you went to the show. But it's just increased in value because the context of the band and what it means yeah. has increased its value and made it more desirable. So exactly. it's just a digital version of that effectively that you can carry around wherever you are. Um, you don't have to keep it in a wardrobe or whatever. Everyone can see that you owns it. And it gets you access. And it get, Yeah, and mm-hmm. it can get you access to other things. And so that kind of answers my next question, which was going to be, I'm trying to imagine a kind of NFT skeptic side where I'm trying to ask questions from their perspective. Yeah. And we were talking just before the podcast where we were saying, you know, you might meet a guy that, six months ago, let's say, when NFTs weren't as widely known as something of value, that would be driving in a nice car, like wearing a Rolex, maybe wearing like some branded clothing or whatever, but cannot understand why a picture of a monkey is worth X amount. Yeah. How do you speak to that person and compare it to their what they're wearing yep. uh, to help them understand why these NFTs would have any value? I think if you drive a Lamborghini and wear a Rolex, you're a better place than anyone to understand why you pay, 
you know, six figures for a, for a monkey JPEG in the same way that, you know, you don't buy your Lamborghini to get from A to B and you don't buy your Rolex to tell the time. You buy it because it's communicating something about yourself. It's communicating your status, but it's also, you know, communicating who you are as a person, uh, like identity, um, your taste, uh, you know, who you are. Uh, NFTs have become the digital version of that. And I don't necessarily think this is the best use case, but it's definitely been the leading use case has been a show of status. And we've seen that with, you know, the biggest rappers in the world now, who probably are the kings of, um, you know, signaling status, not now all own board Ape Yacht Club NFTs. And, you know, I anticipate the the thing that they struggle with is that it isn't like tangible, it isn't physical. But, um, you know, people have been interacting with digital assets their whole lives. And, um, you know, the verification tick on Twitter isn't something that you, you feel or touch. But I know a lot of people who would spend a lot of money mm. to get that because it signals something about themselves. And the incredible kind of innovation with NFTs sounds stupid was that people realized they could put it as their profile picture. All of a sudden you had this place to display, you know, your most expensive tokens. And it's a great way of showing status online. If you think in a, in a world where increasingly we're spending way more time online networking online than we are, you know, going to a kind of conference and shaking hands with people, people now need a way to, you know, signal A, they're wealthy or B, they are, um, you know, ahead of the curve culturally, and they were able to spot something before everyone else did, and that's what NFTs do. And you have different NFTs which signal different things. So, like I said, Board Eight Yacht Club has become this, um, you know, kind of the project of choice for musicians, artists, you know, people who have made a lot of money in the kind of creative space. You have then have crypto punks, which are almost more for the kind of crypto OGs, people who have been in the space for the last three or four years. We're seeing like doodles; they're being really kind of adopted by the more kind of media, fashion forward. Um, slightly younger audience. Again, it's this combination of status, but also signaling identity, which I think being the kind of first real adopted use case for NFTs, I don't necessarily think it's the best one, but it's a valid one because it's, you know, people are are adopting it. And the great thing about the market is that you can't really argue with the market. People are paying $100,000 for a JPEG of a monkey because that's what it costs. And the market has decided that. And you can't argue with that really. And whether that's necessarily true realized value you know in the future we don't know but right now that's literally what the market has decided it will cost so yeah i think if you drive a lambo then you, you probably get it more than you think <laughs> when you look at the rolex it's not just the weight of the gold or the or the yeah. raw materials that are in there uh, it's not just the engineering behind it that's in that value there is also a significant overhead that goes into that building of brand and context over yeah. the I don't know how Rolex, how long Rolex has been around. Uh, maybe hundreds of years. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that it's uh, that they've been around as a brand. So, and that has cost something. And they've worked with agencies and other people to make sure that brand has continued over time. You mentioned that NFT projects, at least the top five, have venture capital behind them now. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that part of that capital is going to go towards perpetuating the context of those NFTs being valuable and groundbreaking projects to further increase their value. Why are more traditional agencies that may have worked with brands like Rolex or Lamborghini to perpetuate their value mm-hmm. not prepared for continuing to create value in for something like Board Ape Yacht Club, for example? What is it that they don't understand about the space that would yeah? Flaws? It's funny, like there's definitely like an accelerated timeline, right? Where you're right, like Rolex has built its brand over tens of years of prestige and reliability, whereas these projects are achieving similar valuations in less than a year. But I think that just speaks to the, you know, when you have 
these kind of like digital markets which then plug into social media and just like the way the world is now and the kind of speed of everything i think it's just it's just how it's come about but yeah there's definitely a um a very different kind of culture that you need to understand and so there's a you know what these projects are also doing is they're capturing a moment in time even the story behind board ape yacht club the, the kind of story is that it's for crypto degens who have made all their money and they're you know multi multi-millionaires in the future and they have retired to this swamp to relax and do nothing as bored apes. Sounds ridiculous, but what they've what they managed to do, even in the artwork and all of the kind of storytelling behind it, is they capture this kind of crypto culture of you know this kind of pirate uh, anti-establishment doing our own thing kind of ethos, which has then played into the value creation. Board Ape Yacht Club was also the reason it is so valuable is because it was the innovator. They were the first movers. And well, CryptoPunk were the first mover, but they really innovated on what CryptoPunk built and built the idea that it gave you access to a club, the idea that you owned the intellectual property of the artwork. All of these things in the space with crypto being a first mover is really how, kind of how you build the prestige that somewhere like Rolex uh, bought. So unless you really have a deep understanding of the tech and how you can push it forward, how you can launch something that nobody else has done in the space, that's really kind of where you earn your stripes. And so... It's very difficult for a brand, a traditional brand who is kind of dipping their feet uh, feet in the water with crypto, to kind of capture the sort of uh, you know the hearts or the minds of the of the Web three native audience because you need to be really doing something that is that nobody else is doing and there's almost this kind of skepticism towards the traditional brands anyway because well why should they be coming in here and and kind of launching on our soil and so like when we've seen traditional brands do well it's because they're really kind of thinking outside the box and like i said the crypto audience really wants to support projects that they feel are are innovating and actually creating real value as opposed to box ticking like simply doing it as a marketing gimmick or something that sits alongside a campaign which is something we see a lot of and isn't necessarily a bad thing but these aren't projects that are going to be talked about in you know, six months time, let alone five, 10 years. Mm. And so it's the ability to innovate and to innovate, you need to really deeply understand the technology and how you can do new things with the technology, essentially. So we've talked a lot about the definitions of the space and and the most talked about things being NFTs and the projects that are going on and where people are going right, where people are going wrong. I remember early on when I first learned about blockchain as a whole, there was conversation around it being the next currency, the way that people just deal with finance in the future and that fiat currency will eventually become obsolete and that it will be a cryptocurrency that you you will use because technologically speaking, apparently makes so much more sense. Do you think that's the case? I think that the, yeah, the efficiencies that, that crypto enables really kind of show how kind of archaic and outdated the, the traditional banking system is. You know, the ability to send money instantly, to be able to do it on the weekends and you know not have this idea that I'm waiting for my bank to wake up. Also, there's this kind of lack of transparency and, and black box thinking behind banking at the moment that you don't really know where your money is or what it's being used for. I think that cryptocurrency solves a lot of those problems. I think we're still very far away from adopting because of the volatility of it mm. and because, as obviously the last two weeks have shown, um, nobody really knows what's going on half no. the time. <laughs> Um, to be completely honest. And the tokens themselves, we're still figuring out what the use cases are for each one. So many people, when Bitcoin um, you know, really started to kind of explode, everybody thought this was going to be the currency that we you know, buy a pizza with. It became pretty clear 
that Bitcoin isn't built. And people need to realize that different tokens, different blockchains are built for different use cases and they're optimized for different use cases. Uh, and so Bitcoin isn't built to be you know, transacted and, and sent over high volumes um, and has now really become a, a store of value. It's become like digital gold more than anything. Uh, again, it's a valid use case, but it isn't probably the use case that people thought it was going to be. Ethereum is therefore you know, the next one that came along and meant to you know, be more of a, a token which is used to transact with high volumes, but also used to uh, a blockchain that is used to kind of transfer assets, data, which is how NFTs came about. Mm. Again, it became pretty clear that Ethereum isn't built to, to kind of handle such high volumes of transactions for NFTs, which is why you hear about these kind of high transaction fees on the platform, which has made it unusable for anything other than kind of high quality one-of-one -one artwork. Uh, and that's now where we have different blockchains, which some of them are, you know, basically built on top of Ethereum, like Polygon, which is uh, basically going to be Polygon and Solana, which are going to be the blockchains of choice for like gaming, because gaming, you know, requires a huge number of transactions. Without getting into too much detail, the point I'm making is that we're still understanding, you know, how the, the roles that each blockchain plays in, in the kind of ecosystem. And so whilst I do think that the efficiencies that crypto enables will 100% replace the, the traditional financial systems, we're still a long, long way from that happening because there's a lot of issues that need to be fixed before then. Do you think it'll, there will be one coin that you'd use or what it sounds like right now is that there's like a different use case for each each different type of token? Do you think it'll be split up or will there be one? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's most likely, yeah, I think most likely it'll be split up. But whether it will completely replace the, the financial, what you need then is also governments to play ball. And I think that's that's very unlikely to happen. But I think uh, in terms of when you think about a, a kind of digital economy and people now are earning money through crypto as their kind of stable income, particularly in, in kind of underdeveloped countries, I think it's very clear that we will will start to use cryptocurrency mainly for that. And I, I know that there are, you know, for example, Ethereum in the if you work in Web3 and you're, you know, spread out across the world, there are people who transact now solely in Ethereum. So it's almost like these different pockets of the industry will gear towards different tokens whichever ecosystem you're working in. If you're working in the Solana ecosystem, you'll probably use Solana. So no, it'll probably be split between the different tokens depending on the industry you work in. But they all kind of use the same platforms, right? So there's this kind of efficiency between swapping and transacting between them. Sounds like there's a lot of work still to, yes, to be done. So now I want to talk about the work that needs to be done and, and essentially what you're doing now with mm -hmm. uh, ThirdWeb and, and how you're helping sort of accelerate the pace of uh, improvement in the space. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about what ThirdWeb is, what it does, what it's looking to achieve, and then what your role is there? Yeah. So ThirdWeb is a, a platform that makes it very easy to build Web3 apps. So Web3 apps being an NFT collection, it could be a digital marketplace like OpenSea, could be a DAO, so a decentralized autonomous organization, which are these similar to companies, but they're basically owned by the users and using like governance tokens, you make decisions based you know, for, for the direction of the company. Um, it could be blockchain games, basically any any kind of application that, that uses NFT or blockchain technology. Now, um, if you wanted to build one of these applications or if you want to launch an NFT collection, uh, you need to uh, be able to write a new kind of coding language, which essentially enables you to write smart contracts, which is how these um, kind of applications interact with the blockchain. Now, that system, that process has traditionally been very, very kind of difficult, complex, and it requires you hiring like a smart contract engineer, which are very expensive and very kind of in short supply. Our platform basically takes away all that complexity and um, you know, allows you to to launch any of these applications by 
using a very kind of intuitive dashboard. Now we have like no code and low code features so you can launch an NFT collection if you're like me, you have no idea what you're doing. Um, but we also have like developer toolkits where you can build something far more complex, like a blockchain game or, or a whole like Web3 ecosystem. Is it that like intuitive? Like could I launch a project this afternoon? You can launch a project. It's simple for non-technical people can basically launch uh, yeah, NFT collections. That's brilliant. Um, but the, the key difference here is that when you create a, a project on third web, you still own the smart contract yourself. Right. So, for example, you could go on OpenSea and, and mint an NFT, but OpenSea owns that smart contract. This one is deployed with your wallet, and that's super important in the space to be able to have that provenance and that kind of, um, you know, one of the key features of this whole industry is, you know, being able to look into the code, which is all transparent, and see exactly which wallet deployed it. And that means you can verify it came from that artist and it isn't a fake. Right. And you can't do that on OpenSea, you're saying? No, so OpenSea, all of the smart contracts, they appear to be basically owned by OpenSea if you were to look into the code, right. which just isn't, you know, if you think about the creator ethos, it isn't really the direction you should go in. So you're essentially, the team at Third Web are essentially making it more accessible. Making it more accessible, lowering the barrier to entry massively increasing the developer ecosystem for Web3. So basically, if you're a Web2 developer and you can build any Web2 app, you can now develop for Web3 apps because our platform does all the kind of smart contract work for you. But if you're a Web2 developer, you can still use our tools, which are basically Web2 developer toolkits to connect applications to the blockchain. And it's that connecting that has been historically slowed teams down by months. This kind of accelerates it to a few days. And what specifically do you do there? Because it sounds like a big change from... Yeah, six years ago, running you know, or even longer when you when you started running meme pages, and then mm -hmm. you know the marketing campaigns that you'd ideate and construct and deploy, sounds like a big change. So what what exactly are you doing there now? Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, it, I'm doing a lot of a lot of similar stuff. So I'm creative director, but I look really I look after a lot of the growth work that we do. I was the first non technical hire, so my first job was building the the marketing team, and obviously. I'd done that at social chain. I'd built a kind of marketing team before, but we you know I really look after. All of our kind of marketing activity as it speaks to mostly organic content, how we translate what the product guys are building into clear, understandable concepts um, for our audience. And so like being able to digest that and communicate it has been like a, a huge kind of win for us. And then obviously my deep understanding of social media, we know that basically our, our strategy has been experiment, identify which platforms work and then scale them. And so, you know, I've taken all my experience running social pages for big tech brands. Um, you know, we did Uber, we did like Twitch, TikTok. And basically, how do I build a similar ecosystem for us? Mm. Um, and building all the social channels, all the creator partnerships, but also the design and branding as well. So kind of really figuring out how we present ourselves to the world, which I think are our edges is our ability to um, really kind of stand out. Because in this space, it's very technical and it's very kind of inaccessible at times. So our focus has been, how do we build a brand which is very kind of open, accessible, understandable to the kind of uh, casual user, which actually being someone who is non-technical and has never been in tech before, I think I had a huge advantage in that way, in that um, it only took me getting as close to developers as possible, understanding the concepts and then using my skills to, to communicate that basically. So it sounds a lot like understanding culture has always been a theme throughout everything that you've done yeah absolutely and like i i'm only interested in working on brands that i think have a place as a cult brand mm. and so one of the the key things that we identified is that uh somebody kind of said it to me in a very reductive way he was like your job or your opportunity is to be the cool sexy guy at the party because everybody in crypto is not cool and not sexy and so like once you get the fundamentals right, so my focus has been, you know, how do we get our like technical marketing right? Because you're speaking to developers and developers have a very specific, they're only interested in accurate 
you know, it has to be very clean, precise, correct information. So my main focus is, okay, how do we nail that? How do we get like a very good cadence of technical marketing content? And then how do we become a cult brand? So how do we, you know, like we partnered with a NFT artist to create like a merch drop and we do these big storytelling video pieces, which kind of tell the Web3 story in very like clear, understandable way and, you know, distribute it through influencers. Similar to the tactics we deployed with some of the biggest kind of consumer facing brands in the world. Actually, we think the opportunity is to do that with a kind of more, um, you know, technical closed ecosystem um, and, you know, really increase that top of the funnel activity, which then, you know, if we know we can reach two or three million people, there's going to be 10, you know, 15,000 developers in there. And it's just a much better strategy for that. I like that a lot. <laughs> That's cool. Say you're someone that is a lot younger listening to this and is really wanting to get involved in the crypto space, whether that is helping out with projects or starting to understand code. Is there anyone that you feel like they should be following in the space that is really pioneering and setting a really strong example, like not like all of these people that are doing like rug pulls and stuff. Mm -hmm. Are there any people out there that people that are interested in the space should be following or is there any projects that are specifically exciting to yeah. watch? Or who's in your black book? Yeah, <laughs> it's a good question because it's important to like sift through the, the crap. Mm. Um, and there are certain, I think the best people you want to follow are those that, really approach the space from like an objective standpoint and talk about the the technology and what it enables as opposed to like specific projects. I think when it comes to specific projects, that's kind of like a journey discovery. You have to go on your own and you have to like browse on OpenSea, um, maybe watch YouTube videos. But I think what you're actually better doing is making sure you find like the, the channels, like the YouTube channel, The Defiant is a great place to start. Just like very kind of objective, um, you know, pointed videos about Web3. You want to avoid influencers who are at any point paid to promote projects because the minute you kind of go down that rabbit hole then you never really know whether what they're saying is um paid for essentially and then there are a few twitter accounts i'd recommend like i said people who can kind of take the technical concepts and digest them in a really understandable way um punk 6529 he's like one of the real leading thinkers in the space and has a few kind of really famous threads that kind of distill all the the noise and bullshit that's happening and can almost, you know, communicate what's happening. And it's, it's, it's one of those like threads that you read. It feels like you're coming off air a little bit and you kind of understand it a bit better. And then Punk9059 similarly um, really focuses on data. And so like they take a lot of the, the numbers that are happening in the space and help us understand what they mean and what that means in a wider marketing context. But also it's a great aggregator of what a lot of the projects are doing and how they're innovating. I would also say like, if you're really interested in the space, identifying projects that you like it could be an nft project it could be you know crypto web3 project like it could be third web and we've i've seen this firsthand where um you know finding these projects and actually just contributing and helping out uh so a story i always like to tell is that you know we when we kind of launched third web we had a huge influx of people coming to our discord like 10 15,000 almost in two days we were kind of overwhelmed with people coming into the discord wanting to find out about third web wanting to you know discover what our tools could build and we weren't equipped to deal with that traffic. And this this kid who is, uh, you know, based in the Philippines, basically jumped on and um, just started community managing for us. Didn't ask him to. He was answering questions about Third Web. He was directing people to the right links. Uh, he was distilling all the information we had and just basically providing it to people, providing customer support. And so I just messaged him and was like, hey, really appreciate the, the help you're giving. Um, would you like a job? And he's been one of our community leaders ever since, um, like last <laughs> nine, 10 months. And now he has a you know foot in the door with Web3. He can, he'll probably have a very long and, and prosperous career in it. 
And I just kind of made me realize that there is this new way of being able to grab opportunity now because of the openness and transparency of everything. And Discord is this kind of wild, people underrate, you know, the ability to kind of um, come into a, it's basically, I, I see it as like the second landing page for your company, but there's a constant kind of conversation happening with the the team, but also with, you know, people who are also using the product. Uh, and so now there's this, this opportunity that young people can grasp by just being present in the right places, contributing before they get the work, and then the work will find you. Of course, you're going to be compensated and you're going to be, if you provide value, they're going to you know, want to keep you. And so I think there's a wild opportunity now for, for young people more than ever before to get in early to, these, to, these, to this space. I've got one, one final question for you, and it's, uh, it is a question that I ask all of our guests, uh, and it's more of a personal question. Uh, that question is, what one quality do you see within yourself that you feel without it, you wouldn't succeed? Um, uh, that's a good question. I think probably my curiosity, and that's just I've always been very interested in what's next, and I, I have like a very kind of open-minded approach to when I see new technology or new culture, new anything, and I think that's enabled me to kind of uh, go down rabbit holes and uh, discover ideas before they kind of hit the mainstream. And I think that people who are able to do that. Um, become very valuable when it comes to marketing in, in particular um, because you're able to you know spot these kind of arbitrage opportunities but also it just helps you figure out I think what you want to do with yourself and what you want to do with your with your life basically because um, yeah there's so much and so I think the the curiosity and being very open-minded with these things because I've you know imagine the amount of people I've spoken to about web3 and the difficult conversations I have where it's a very kind of close-minded shut the door approach. And as a result, you might miss out on could be a marketing tactic that could be very beneficial to you, but also it could be a career change or you know lifestyle change, anything. Um, and so, yeah, always being curious, I guess, is is my one piece of advice. Excellent, wasn't it? Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Social. Make sure you subscribe to us so you're notified when an episode drops. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing at Campfire, make sure to follow us on the socials in the show notes. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode.